welcome to this edition of Credo Talks. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. On today's show, my guest is Mike Barron. At last, it's the Bloody Red Barron experience I've been promising you for the past several weeks. Well, I'm here with Mike to discuss his work in comics, including The Badger, Nexus with Steve Rude. Other comics that Mike has worked on include The Punisher for Marvel Comics, The Flash, Batman, and Deadman for DC Comics, Archer and Armstrong for Valiant Comics, and Star Wars when it was published through Dark Horse Comics. Mike has also written several novels, many of which are being released this year. He's going to talk about those. Some of his books are also available right now on Amazon, including the Bad Road Rising series and his comic book work collected in trades. Mike and I talk about the state of the comic book industry, are comics dying, and I also talked to Mike about a blog post they did about a post-literate society. I ask him what he means by that. Did you know that Mike also practices martial arts? Well, we talk about that. But I start with an article that Mike wrote way back in 1973 about Marvel. He went to visit the offices, interviewed Stan Lee, and I asked about that experience. My interview with Mark took place on March 13th, and just a warning, there is some strong language here and there. Mike Barron is a very interesting guy. I've done over 100 interviews so far, and I've never had one like this before. It was an experience. My conversation with Mike Barron, here now on Creator Talks. Welcome to Creator Talks. Thank you, Chris. I would like to go back to the early days of your work. When you were writing for magazines and newspapers, you wrote for the Boston Globe, We, Argosy, AARP Magazine. Are you the one sending me those solicitations for a tote bag? <laughs> no, they do that to everybody. Are you 30 years old yet? I started getting those when I was 40. I'm like, guys, whoa, you know, take it easy. What they should do is put an offer for those giant remote controls with the big buttons. That would help people, actually, so they can see <laughs> the remote. <laughs> they should put the AARP in charge of the CIA. <laughs> That's a great idea. But you, one of the things you did caught my attention. You wrote for Cream Magazine, America's rock and roll magazine. You wrote about Marvel in the early days, 1973. I interviewed Stan. Did you talk to anybody else in the office besides Stan? Was he the only person you interfaced with directly? Pretty much. I went down there just to talk to him. I may have talked to some other people, but I don't remember, and I'm sure they don't remember. Well, Stan probably wouldn't remember. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, every time I would see him, I'd say, Mr. Lee, we've met before. I wrote Punisher, or I write Punisher. He'd say, oh, yeah, yeah, Mike Barron. Sure, I remember you. But that's because I always told him my name. He said, Mr. Lee, Mike Barron. <laughs> I actually went through and read that article, and people in the office at the time, Herb Trimpey, who was working on The Hulk, Marie Severin, who was working on Call, I just picked a bunch of her books in like the bargain bins for like three bucks a piece at my local comic shop. I couldn't believe all these Call comic books were sitting there and they look beautiful. And I was like, well, man, I'm going to buy a handful of these. Why not? Jazzy John Romita was there too in the office when you went in. I've never met Senior as far as I know. I may have, but if I did, I forget. Well, you've met a lot of people, worked with a lot of people. So, yeah, I'm the same way. People walk up to me and go, hey, how are you? I'm like, all right, how are you? And I'm like, I have no idea who they are. I'm just like, that's really good to see you again. Yeah, take care. <laughs> 
And also around that time, uh, Barry Windsor Smith. Now, I don't think he was in the office in 1973. I don't believe he was. I visited him at his uh, apartment in Brooklyn. And the funny thing was, uh, three nights ago, I had dinner with uh, Linda Lessman Reinhold, who's one of the finest colorists in the business. And she was Barry Smith's girlfriend at the time. I didn't meet her then, but she was with Barry for a long time. But I visited Barry, and I was knocked out by his pencils. I was just in awe of his ability to create a three-dimensional world on a two-dimensional thing. That run on Conan that he did was one of the definitive runs. And then he was followed by John Buscema, who was on there for, oh, geez, years, years. Great stuff. One of the things in your article, I actually read the article (laughs) recently, And at the time, there was the issue where the artists did not get their own artwork back. This was still a problem at Marvel. The only one I read in your article that still had their art was Starenko, because he did everything. So it was his. Yeah, Jim's a smart guy. I want to go back to Conan. One of the things, and I've heard about this being a problem in the reprints, is the color. They were having problems with reproducing the color in the comics, and even today, there has been some criticism over recoloring his work that kind of muddies out his fine pencils. I would have to see that. I know that Dark Horse reprinted a lot of the Barry Smith Conan's. Don't ask me how. Oh, that's right. They had the Robert E. Howard franchise for a while. Yes. I still have some of the original comics, so I don't know how they've been recolored. But the originals were colored just fine. Yeah, I thought so. I have their trades through Dark Horse where they collected them, and they looked okay to me, but I haven't compared them to the original comics, which I have a few of those. And now I understand that License is going to transfer back to Marvel, I think, at the end of this year. Interesting to see what they do with it. I know that Gail Simone did some uh, Red Sonja for Dynamite. Yes, those were fantastic. She does a great job on Red Sonja. I love those. When I read the article that you wrote back then, one of the closing statements was, is this the end of comics? And we, we have that conversation now, <laughs> every, right? Every day. Every, every day. Because at the time, the price was going up to 20 cents. I know. Shocking. <laughs> Scandalous. But, you know, it was the same concern. Price is going up, reduced page count, more ads, deja vu all over again, you know? Today, we have newer, I guess you could say, in quotes, threats to print comic books, monthly print comic books, because there is digitization. You can always pick it up digitally. If you miss it, it's not like you're out of luck. You have to go to the back issue binge. You have to hunt it down. If you really just want to read it, there's different ways to get it. And plus we have distribution issues. Sometimes people not getting their books that they ordered just through distribution problems or it's a small number and they get missed. And for comic shops now, it's hard to try to bring in steady, regular customers to buy monthly books. They have to invent new ways to bring in business. Gaming is a big thing now that really brings in people and keeps that sense of community. Having artists and writers visit the shop and meet with people. In your opinion, is it different now when people speak about the death of comics from when you first wrote that article? Other than the things that I mentioned, do you see other problems and concerns that could end comics in monthly print form? Prognostication is gloomy and there are two main culprits. One is video games which are sucking the life energy out of our young so that they're not interested in reading. And I have to say that most of the better video games are far more involving than most comics. And secondly, consolidation within the big two that's sucking the life out of all the middle-tier publishers. People, if you want diversity in comics, you have to support Dark Horse 
and first and uh, image and boom and dynamite however with the exception of dark horse and image all those brands are focusing on franchise characters but to get back to the death of comics uh digitalization i don't get it you know, I can't read a comic book online. It's just not the same thing. There's a certain magic that happens when you look at a two-dimensional page and enter into it, into three dimensions, because of the ink and the color on the page. It's not the ink and color on the screen. And the screen is just another effect. I also think that kids aren't reading in general these days. And it's just uh, the way the culture is going, which is down. Uh, I think comics will always be here because there are enough fans to keep them alive. Uh, but right now, the comics' main value is just a kind of feeder system for the movies. And by that, I mean Marvel and DC. Although you have your outliers like uh, Hellboy and a few others. No, right. Absolutely. I mean, like the big two. And I do read some of their books, of course. I do like some of their characters always have. But they do have the lion's share of the market and the dollars that go into the market. And a lot of the books that I buy, probably like 80% are Boom, Dynamite, Image, Dark Horse. They're the smaller publishers first, you know, ones that I have to make sure I pre-order or I will not get the book because there's just not enough on the shelf. They just can't take the risk, unfortunately. I read books on tablets. can't really read them on the computer, but the tablet I do. But I do like having a book in my hands, especially the older books. I like to read trades for newer books in print, but I do like the older books the original copy because there's the smell of the paper there's the old ads the house ads are in there that say oh i remember that book too and i have to have that experience and that little time capsule of history of the letter page where you can read people's comments at the time and commenting on society there's nothing like that i have to be in that space i read this in your blog on a post-literate society now why do you say many comics are unreadable I think that identity politics has caused a number of people to be appointed to books before they're really ready. And if you must have an example, it would be Ta-Nehisi Coates, who writes uh, Black Panther. He's known primarily for his book explaining why racism has crushed his life. And I bought the books, and I just felt that he had not learned the craft of writing comics. Well, you know, I understand he's going to be moving on to Captain America after uh, Mark Wade and Chris Somney's run. I'm sorry to see that Mark Wade's run is going to be rather short. It's only like, I guess, four or five issues. It's not going to be that long a run. I wouldn't know, Chris. I hardly read any comics these days. I will buy the new Captain America. I am collecting Chuck Dixon's Bane series for DC, and I always get stray bullets. I read a lot of comics, and it is tough because teams do move around. Creative teams move around a lot. I mean, it's good for the creators so they get a chance to flex their muscles and try different things, and maybe a particular writer or artist will uh, appeal to an audience more and help sell more books. But it's a little maddening for me when I just get used to a team and then they're moved on. And the other maddening thing, which I'm, I would hazard to guess, you would probably agree, is the numbering of books, how we keep renumbering. And I understand why. I know it's sales, but it is maddening that they keep renumbering the books. Yeah. Um, I mean, we've done the same thing with Nexus and Badger. Now it's incoherent. I don't know where we're at. Since you brought up Badger, it is renumbered, but you did also update the character, put him in the present day, and actually give the Badger an origin story. There are several origin stories. The series we did for Dark Horse's Shattered Mirror, which Jill Thompson illustrated, is his childhood origin story. Uh, but the new origin story was just to bring readers up to speed 
need and to bring Badger into the 21st century and to give an insight into his mental problems. And that was a five-issue series through Devil's Due First Comics. Do you plan on doing a second series at some point when the timing's right? The, the series is done. It's ready to go to the printer. We're just waiting for first to pull the trigger. A lot of times they're trying to find the right timing in the market. I know some people I've talked to, like they're all set to release their book and then like, oh, it's been put on hold for a while. I'm not an insider. I don't know what the reason would be. I'm sure it all has to do with what makes dollars and cents, but it could also be other companies having big crossovers. There could be other pulls from other media that's distracting Could be gamma rays. (laughs) It could be gamma rays. And you mentioned the video games, too. And I can see kids gravitating that direction because I guess for them, they're probably getting more bang for their buck. And when you think about $4 for a comic compared to a game that they could play multiple times, play with people online, they're just like, eh, they don't have the patience. Now, in my house, and people who listen to the show know this, I have two small boys. One is of reading age. Just started to read pretty well. He's like six and a half, so he can read pretty well now. He plays Minecraft. He's always playing that game on his PC, but he's learned it so well, and he teaches himself how to do things, but I make sure. Let's go read. Oh, that's good. I pull out a comic. So which one do you want to read? And I usually take him back to something that's older, like something Jack Kirby did, something that would appeal to him. It's not too complicated, because newer books can be a little too complicated for him, and they're generally written for an older audience, so something he can follow. I would recommend Uncle Scrooge. Oh, hey, that's a good idea. I have not shown him that yet. I'll have to work that in because I'm trying to show him a little bit of everything. The classic Uncle Scrooge by Carl Parks. Yes. That was my first comic. Was it really? When did you get that? Did you go to the store to buy it or did someone give it to you? It was 1879. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> no, I, I grew up in South Dakota. It was, it was in the early 60s in Mitchell, South Dakota off a of spinner rack, I'm sure. Yeah, the good old spinner racks. I love those. <laughs> That's where I bought mine. Either the spinner rack at the 7-Eleven or at the drugstore. I'm glad I had that opportunity to do that. I love the comic shops. Don't get me wrong. They'll actually engage me and talk to me about the books. But, uh, you know, the drugstore, they would just kind of watch me like, he's going to take something. <laughs> no, I'm just... <laughs> just ain't no library, kid. <laughs> right. They would give me the hairy eyeball like I was up to no good. I'm like, I'm just checking out the books. Believe me, I'm going to spend all my money here. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, I know, it's, there's fewer kids are reading on their own, but he does read with me, my son, and then... He will go off and read his own books to us. Like my wife will go to her next, and then he'll read something out loud. Whatever he wants to pick out. In fact, this evening before our call, uh, the missus picked him up from school and took him to the library to get some books out. We're making sure that he's familiar with books. I think it really helps keep you uh, sharp. I think it helps increase your knowledge. I have to get away from the screen after a while. I try to, like, every night now, we're like, okay, before we watch whatever on TV, let's read for about an hour. <laughs> Just to kind of do something different and have some peace and quiet. And like, yeah, all right, let's do that. That's been kind of the routine now. An hour of reading every night before we do anything else. Oh, good for you. I want to ask you about something that you enjoy doing. Martial arts. I believe you mentioned in one article that you were bullied as a kid. Yeah, weren't we all? Did that influence your decision to step onto the dojo floor? I think partly. Although by the time I did it, I was 25. Right, it was just after uh, you were... Out of college, right? In Boston, the Joshin Do Academy. That's right. Andy Bauman was your first sensei. And this is great because he learned when he was stationed in Korea, like many Americans did, when martial arts first came to the States, they picked it up in the service because they had nothing else to do while they were hanging out over there when they weren't training. Yeah, Andy is was like 
the human hulk he uh has a gym in phoenix now you know andy's still around he must be close to 80 but he looks great you've trained at many different dojos and at home throughout your life are you still practicing to this day oh yeah i train today i'll train tomorrow training out of the house i go to karate west in fort collins colorado an excellent school probably well i can't say the best but among the best i've ever attended i've been lucky to have some exceptional teachers. Kimmy is probably the most exceptional. And the, the odd thing is that we both graduated from the same high school. He was a little behind me in Madison, Wisconsin. And we both ended up here. And I started training with him, I think, in 04 or 05. Now, do you actually teach any of the classes yourself since you have so much knowledge and experience? Occasionally, but I'm a piker compared to some of the people there. Well, with all your training, you don't have to do it through brute strength, of course. You can be more efficient. Good. And you know more strategy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just a feeble old man, Chris. (laughs) Oh, come on. One of the things I read, since you were practicing in the martial arts, as a result, when you would see martial arts in the comics, comics that you loved, Deadly Hands of Kung Fu, Iron Fist, something was missing. Cool poses, but they couldn't quite convey martial arts action in the books. That's another reason I got into comics. So I knew instinctively that the stuff they showed us was bogus. And I wanted to show it correctly and in an exciting and dynamic manner, Uh, something akin to the best Donnie Yen movie where you see the action flowing and it doesn't look like pictures on a paper, but you're actually witnessing a fight. And I think we've achieved that in a few places. Uh, The first time was in Badger number nine, hot August night. And if you ever see that, if you can ever find a copy, you'll see exactly what I mean. Uh, and most recently, two years ago in the, the new Badger series, when Badger fights Vladimir Putin, as drawn by Val Meyerich, that's one of the most realistic and brutal fights ever put in a comic. And we're doing it again with our new comic, Q-Ball, which I created with Barry McLean, a fantastic young artist out of Denver. Uh, and we have our first issue. We kickstarted it, and now we're going to try and get it picked up by a mid-level publisher. Great. And you started out as a bit of an artist yourself early in your career. Well, hardly. That first attempt at it in Badger, when you were working with Bill Reinhold, you would actually sketch out and you know use models for what you wanted it to look like, take photographs and pose, kind of like Alex Ross would do for his paintings, you know, use an actual life image. Well, you're too kind. More like Archie Goodwin did for his. I would draw each page out completely, more or less, with feeble, half-assed art. But it was good enough, and I would include everything you needed right there on the page. So editors and artists loved it. They didn't have to wade through page after page of description because I drew what I wanted them to have. And if they didn't understand it, I'd write little side notes and I'd put all the dialogue in and all the uh, captions. And that was the page. You know, I might rejigger it a little later after it was penciled, but that was essentially the story. Well, Badger was yours. That was your creation. You wanted to write about druids. I didn't want to write about druids. Jeff Butler wanted to write about, he said, I want to draw some wizards. So we cooked up this story about uh, Ham, the seventh century druid, and we took it in to show the boys at Capitol Commerce. And they said, look what we got. And they looked at it and said, yeah, nobody wants to read about a druid wizard. We want a costume crime fighter. And uh, Jeff says, well, I'm not going to throw these out. I can't let these go to waste. So I said, fine. You know, this will just be the preamble, and then we'll introduce the main character. 
And that's how Ham met Badger. Now, you also worked, you wrote Nexus with Steve the Dude Rude. Still am writing Nexus. Uh, you still are, yes. There's a giant newspaper. I have all of them. I, the dialogue, I did not write that. If it seems a little off to you, it's because uh, the dude, in his wisdom, rewrote a lot of it. But we are preparing a massive new amount of material that Dark Horse will publish. Do you have an idea of when that might be? solicited no but we already have 75 pages that are finished awesome now when you first met steve a friend of yours called you and said hey there's this guy he's showing me some art it looks like your art you should check this out so you meet steve and you look at his portfolio and you're like well i'm not drawing anymore no but and the guy that said that i'd showed him my etchings but they were pretty pathetic and you know and dave god bless him i may see him in a couple of months Dave Wagner, he was the editor. He was no art connoisseur and didn't know anything from comics. So when he looked at my bad shit and he looked at dude's shit, uh, to him it was just all the same, you know. When you looked at Steve's portfolio that first time, what struck you when you saw it? Well, his mastery of form and his unique style. Even today when I look at those pages in Nexus, I'm like, my God, this is fantastic. It's just beyond imagination. Do you ever get tired of people asking you about the Nexus work? Nah, I'm delighted people remember it and think highly of it. And we have a whole bunch of new stuff coming out. And hopefully, dude loved my last script so much, maybe he won't mess with it. <laughs> well, I'll ask him next time I talk to him. But you've worked on a lot of stuff. I mean, you've worked on Punisher, Punisher War Journal, Dead Man, The Flash, Batman. Well, I'm writing novels now. That's my main thing. And I'm going to have seven novels out this year. Six of them are in the Josh Pratt Bad Road Rising series. Josh Pratt is a reformed motorcycle hoodlum who went to prison, found God, came out, tried to turn his life around by helping people. But the stories are unbelievably grim and violent. And the first two are out. The first is called Biker. And the second is called Sons of Privilege. And the next two will be out in June. Is he guy? Well, I've been writing for years, and then all of a sudden I found a publisher. Have you been revising them over the years? Do you say, done? Or do you go back and go, I'm going to just mess with that a little more? No, once I'm done, I'm done. But when I'm writing a novel, I go back and forth and back and forth constantly, raising all parts of it, revising as I go along. So by the time I'm done with a novel, I've already gone back through it four or five times and then I send it to my editors, who are punctilious, to say the least, and they go over it. Going back to your comic work, is there any character that you wrote that you wish you had written differently, or you'd want to do a different take on now? <laughs> well, geez, everything I wrote before 10 years ago, I'm ashamed and wish I could gather it all together and burn it, but... <laughs> But I think that a lot of writers feel that way. Yeah, you know, I would not have given up the flash. I would have thought of stories, but I wasn't able to do that then. Going back to the Valiant days, and this kind of connects with your visit to the Marvel office and talking about Barry Winter Smith's Conan, he was writing and drawing Archer and Armstrong, and he was one of the founders of Valiant. He was in there as their senior art director, and there was a change. In leadership, there was a change in staff, Barry left, and you took over Archer and Armstrong. Was that intimidating for you, knowing it was being done by Barry Windsor Smith? Yeah, it was a little bit. I really didn't know what to do with those characters. Today, I would. Again, you know, there's a lot of things I do differently than I did back then. Uh, I felt much better about my work on Turok and Ninjak. You think you could ever go back to them again? 
maybe sure. say for an annual or a one shot or something. Now, did you ever go to the Valiant offices or was everything through correspondence at that time? Seems to me I was at the Valiant offices. <laughs> Who was your contact there in New York? Bob Layton. And uh, the current publisher, he's been around forever. He's a good guy, but I can't think of his name. Fred Pierce? Yeah. So they do some interesting stuff and they have a lot of variety. And one thing about them is, is that if something's not working or it's pretty much tapped out, they move on to something else. They have plenty of properties to pick from. They don't run something into the ground. If it needs a rest, they give it a rest. You know, we talked about your books. Not nearly enough. Oh, there's more. Not nearly enough. Please continue. (laughs) Well, you know, I have a bunch out through Wordfire Press, which is Kevin J. Anderson's outfit. Kevin's a science fiction writer. He writes the Dune novels, among other things. And uh, the last one I put out, Banshees, about a satanic rock band that returns from the dead, got a starred review in Publishers Weekly. And that's hard to get because I just submitted it over the transom a a lot with 1,000 other hopefuls every day. But somebody spotted it. My biggest novel, it's terrific stuff if you like Stephen King or Robert R. McCammon. And it's about this satanic rock band that returns from the dead and goes on a tour. Nice. Like a little satanic rock band. Sounds great. (laughs) I do enjoy the music. (laughs) Well, I like some heavy metal. I'm mostly a power pop guy. But, But another novel I did was Scorpio. It's a ghost story about a ghost who only appears under a blazing sun. And that, along with Banshees, are probably my two best scary books. You're also adapting some of your books into graphic novels soon, aren't you? I'm working on it. We're looking for a publisher. Now, was it uh, Biker that you're adapting and you're working yes, with Chris Yes, it is Biker. I've finished the script for Biker, and it's my hope that Paul Smith will draw it. But in the meantime, we're working on an adaptation of Sons of Privilege, which is the latest one to come out. And the subject matter is drastically different than the subject matter in Biker. And, and I don't want to explain why, but for various reasons, it looks like Sons of Privilege is going to get the lead spot for now. And I just need time to put together a crowdfunding project for Biker. And I'm sure that with my fans and Smitty's, we wouldn't have any problem getting it funded. No, I don't think you would. Another book that you've been working on for a while, it's with a guy named Jeff Palmer as the artist, Dead Bang Wang. How's that progressing? Jeff had to take time off from that to draw my story, Dancing Queen, which is going to appear in a comic called Tear the Roof Off the Sucker that we're putting together now. It's nearly finished. It's based on some concepts that were given to me by a guy named Frank Cooper. They're all 70s based. There's two streams. One is black exploitation, like Shaft, The Pimp, Hell Up in Harlem. And the other one is disco, disco music. And I'm running two of the characters, Disco Queen, which is kind of like uh, Saturday Night Fever. And uh, the other one is Bad Mother, which would be like Jim Brown type character. Uh, and that takes place in the 70s, too. And uh, Ken Perry has drawn that. He's done a magnificent job. And then we have a third story called Butterfly that was written by Alan Brooks. And I believe it's based on a character that was in the public domain, but I'm not sure. But anyhow, I'll send you the cover uh, and some of the art because uh, it's nearly complete. And so Jeff had to take time off from Dead Bang. Uh, Dead Bang started out as an, another martial arts espionage thriller. I just love that kind of thing. I think Jeff finished two issues, but we didn't have any plans to publish it, you know. I know Jeff is committed to publishing it, but we have to find a place to put it, first of all. And I have an idea all of a sudden. And... That would be? My friend Tommy runs a, uh, a website called Nostomania, nostomania.com. 
And uh, it's the place to go if you collect coins or comics. He has he updates it daily. Uh, it's a more reliable pricing site than the comic book uh, price guide. And uh, he said he was looking to add some editorial material beyond just discussions of the industry. And by that, I think he meant a comic book strip. And I think we just realized we have one ready to go. You know, Jeff, he has a style kind of like Jim Starenko, Paul Galassi, and like a lot of the other artists that you work with, you know, Steve Rude and Val, he's a martial artist. I've seen some of the art. Actually, I run into him at Starbucks every couple of weeks. We're both in Delaware. <laughs> so he shows well, you stuff. You can always his... move. <laughs> yeah, right. Is there anything else that you're working on that you want to share? I'm writing a destroyer novel. Oh, please do tell. Well, I think I like number 160 in the series. I can't really go into the details because then they would come and burn down my house. <laughs> I just want to point out that when I went back and reread a bunch of destroyers, I realized that they were all satires on contemporary America. Uh, and I'm halfway through my seventh Josh Pratt novel, which is pretty horrendous, I'm proud to say. Uh, and, geez, a whole bunch of other stuff I can't think of. Well, you're a busy guy. So on that note, I just have some fun questions for you. And the first one, when you're not so busy writing, training, what do you like to do for rest and relaxation? I ride a bicycle and uh, I ride a motorcycle. And I enjoy them both very much. I like any form of two-wheel transportation. Uh, I read a lot. I watch as many movies as I can. And I like to hear live music. We still go out, especially during the summer. Is there any kind of music you like to hear live? Rock, well, metal? my preferences are always power pop and jazz, although we're in love with this soul band from Greeley, the Burroughs. It's a nine-piece soul band. It's like the white James Brown. He's got a four-man horn section. It's all original music. They're very dynamic. Sounds like a lot of fun. Another question for you. Which birthday stands out in your memory the most and why you know was it a gift or a person that you met or a place you went you know uh, i can think of a couple but it really wouldn't be proper to say why okay <laughs> all right <laughs> well here's an easier question when you were a youth what posters did you have on your bedroom wall uh, i didn't have posters i had a lot of comic books and books and models and which comics did you have well uncle scrooge uh and then when i went to college I, somebody turned me on to stranko and neil adams i couldn't believe that shit so i started collecting all that and then i was on board with the introduction of conan and from there on there was a marvelously fertile period there in the 70s when, it, when marvel had conan and uh kill raven and a couple other things and and DC had Swamp Thing and The Shadow, stuff like that. In your opinion, what is the greatest movie ever made and why? Godfather, uh, because it's perfect art. It draws you into the story. It's absolutely convincing in every detail, and it's devastating in its insights. Yeah, that's a very good pick. It's a great movie. Now, these are some hypothetical questions. If someone were to make an action figure of you, what would be your accessory? Uh, a hat okay i always carry a hat <laughs> usually it's a ball cap sometimes a knit cap every now and then when i'm feeling pretentious it's a fedora <laughs> i used to wear a lot of hats as a kid i was known for wearing a lot of hats apparently so i'm told and uh when i was really young i had this white terry cloth robe and I had a green hat, that kind of a funky mod-looking hat. Yeah. <laughs> I don't I'll have bet. a picture of that. <laughs> Good. 
hypothetical question. If you were stuck on a deserted island and you could only have one book with you, something that you have been meaning to read or something you like to read repeatedly, what would that one book be? Well, let's see. I'll take uh, Centennial by Michener because I've been meaning to read it. If you had to cook or present, if you don't cook, a romantic dinner, what would be on the table? Oh, I cook. Oh, you do? I cook like a motherfucker. Really? I cook all the time. What's your specialty? Uh, I like to make a uh, stir fry in my cast iron skillet with uh, mushrooms, uh, onions, uh, peppers, broccoli, asparagus, and chicken, and then put it in a pasta. That sounds fantastic. That's the kind of food my wife makes. Wok food, slow cooker food, good stuff. It's like being in a restaurant. That's great you have that skill that you can cook. If I do cook, when I did cook, when I when I had to, when it was just me, it would be the wok. Something that would be fast and easy to clean up and good for you. Final question. What is your beverage of choice when you're resting and relaxing? Passion fruit drink from, I think it's a craft product. Any reason why you would prefer that one over others? Well, I like the flavor. I can't drink anymore. I used to drink a lot. Now if I have half a beer, it keeps me up all night. It keeps you up? Doesn't make you sleepy or relaxed? No. Or, really? No. Opposite mm -hmm. effect, huh? Yeah, a couple of drinks for me at the end of the day, and I'm like, pfft, I'm falling asleep on TV. Drop the book I'm reading, and you know, I've had it by the end of the day. I'm tired. Cannot do it. Can't hang anymore. Anything else you want to share with the audience before we wrap up? Well, I would always advise people to take a hat. <laughs> Why don't you tell everyone where they can find your blog? Bloodyredbaron.net. Bloodyredbaron.net. And I'm on Facebook as Michael A. Baron, and I'm on Twitter as at BloodyRedBaron. Will you be making any public appearances at cons coming up? August, I'm going to be at uh, Terrificon in Connecticut. Jeez, I can't remember the casino, but it's where Bellator has their fights. And then in September, I'm going to be at the TampaCon. The TampaCon? Where's that? Tampa. Tampa, Florida. The one in Connecticut. Is that at Mohegan Sun? Yeah. Okay. Very good. Do you enjoy doing them? Well, I enjoy being at the con, but I find travel an increasing ordeal. I know, the flying and uh, the checkpoints and all that stuff. It's a thing. It's a real thing. Gotta make sure you bring everything with you. Don't want to forget stuff. It takes a lot of work. I'm sure you're pretty beat when you're done. A full weekend meeting and greeting. But what... What's the best thing about going to a con when you make your appearances? Seeing old friends. I was in Madison, and I hadn't seen the Reinholds in 20 years. We had dinner together. All right, Mike. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and uh, wish you the best of luck, and I'll be looking for those books and comics coming out soon. Thanks, Chris. Before I move on here to next week's episode, I just want to give a shout-out to Ruth and Darren friends and fellow podcasters of the Rad Adventures Network that includes their podcasts, Trekker Talk, focusing on Ron Randall and his work, Warlord Worlds, focusing on Mike Grell's work, and Xenozoic Xenophiles, which focuses on the work by Mark Schultz. Ruth and Darren went on a nice little vacation, a nice trip, and they went to several beautiful sites that they posted pictures of. You can find those if you follow them on Instagram. And one of the sites they went to was Port Marion. It's the seaside resort village that was used in the television series The Prisoner back in the 60s. I'm a big fan of The Prisoner. They're a big fan of The Prisoner. So they sent me back a few things from their trip, which was wonderful. Uh, a walking guide to Port Marion's prisoner sites. That's so cool. The Prisoner Essential Guide. Uh, a little brochure from Port Marion and a map map of your village. So this is so cool. I was so surprised and delighted to see that. It was a wonderful surprise. I want to thank them both very much. And I'd invite all of you to please check out their podcast. Very well produced, very professional, wonderful people too. 
All right, so what's up for Creator Talks next week? There will be at least one episode broadcast for sure. It will be on Thursday. James Hake III and Raphael Larrero, they did the Mall comic that came out on Free Comic Book Day, issue zero, and they will be doing the Mall series. And that is coming out from the fine folks at Scout Comics. We find out during the interview that this was Scout's first free comic book day offering, and it did very well. It ranked very high among the books that moved quickly on free comic book day. It's a really fun interview. I talked to both the writer, James, and the artist, Raphael. And at the end of the episode, after the credits next week, I think I'm going to add a little bit of bonus material that just some chatter that we had before the show that was a lot of fun. And I want to keep that in there. So I'll have that available for you next week and possibly a second podcast coming out Monday or Tuesday. I'm still working on that. Can't reveal anything about that yet. But James and Raphael, that one is recorded. I'll be working on that for you so you can listen to that next week. I hope you'll come back and join us. Thank you for joining me for Creator Talks this week. The show is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, YouTube, and also on Amazon Echo and Dot Devices. Just say, Alexa, play podcast Creator Talks to hear the latest episode. In addition, you can listen to the show and follow it through Podbean. Your feedback is greatly appreciated, so please rate and review on iTunes if you like the show or an episode that you heard. Your ratings and reviews go a long way to helping the show, and I can't thank you enough for taking a bit of time to do that. For your convenience, in the show notes of each podcast, I have a link to my iTunes page where you can rate and review the show and see the entire list of shows available. If you haven't heard them all, take a look through. There are living legends and -and up-and-coming comic creators. Tell family and friends who like comics and comic book creators about the show. And to subscribe. The content is free. Just as valued are your comments and feedback. You can reach me through Facebook and Twitter at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod. You can also reach out to me by email. You can find that at my website, creatortalks.com. At the website, you will also find blog posts, reviews of books that I have read that you might want to read too, my catalog of podcasts, and videos and other written articles on the website, creatortalks.com. A hearty thank you to all my guests. It is an honor and a privilege for you to make time to be on the show and talk to me about your work. It is your knowledge and insight into the creative process that makes the show so unique. My thanks also goes out to my family who makes this show possible, especially my executive co-producer, Mrs. Calloway. I'll be back each and every Thursday with a new interview. For Creator Talks, I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time. <laughs>